backroom politics. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live from the National Capital Region here in Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday in what looks like will be a uh, short-staffed edition of Backroom Politics. Joining me from, I hope, Northern Virginia he is the man that has served at last count four presidents as Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is the man that has served longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He is the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, Justin. Hey, and uh, I guess uh, hopefully Admiral Ken is supposed to be calling in here, but he's uh, always been uh, he's always become a problem now uh, as far as getting LinkedIn, but we'll deal with that later. Hey, listen, we've got uh, a lot to talk about. I mean, we can talk about memos. We can talk about the State of the Union last week. We can talk the fact that we're in deja vu all over again with government shutdowns. But the real thing we want to talk about, and that's on everybody's mind, is this roller coaster of the economy and the stock market of what's been going on. And funny we should mention, and speaking of Wall Street and the stock market, joining us from New York City, she is Hillary Clinton's former attorney for the 2016 campaign in Ohio. She is a member of the bar in New York and New Jersey. She is the one we know as Sharmila Chari. Hi, Sharmila. Hi, Justin. Hi, gang. Hey, good to hear from you. Hey, let, let's talk about the uh, the stock market for uh, for a second here. In case you have not seen, or in case you're still dizzy from the wild ride that is this Mr. Toad's like wild ride on Wall Street. Yesterday, the stock market went as low as fifteen hundred points down from a almost record high. It then ended up closing about just shy of 1,200 points down, uh, losing about 35 to 4% of its total value. Not a huge, huge crush, but still biggest crush we've seen, biggest points loss we've seen in the history of the market. Uh, and then what everybody expected to be a, another day of volatility, which it kind of is, the stock market as of right now is up 500 some odd points, basically giving back some of the ground it lost yesterday. Uh, it is, people are calling it a correction. People are calling it a shift in policies from one Fed chair to another. Uh, in reality, no one really knows what's going on. But let's talk about who has been taking credit for the stock market and the high prices, and that is President Donald Trump. Uh, Yesterday, he was oddly silent about the stock market losses. Uh, The White House did come back and say that they believe that we are in a very stable economic environment that was caused, obviously, by President Trump. So the the question now remains is, what is real? Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. Uh, when we look at this, I mean, we've all been talking about the Trump bump. We've all been talking about um, how this uh, this economy has been attributed to long-scale practices, but Donald Trump has continued those practices. 
is it fair for us to put the onus of a correction on the stock market on Donald Trump? And at the same time, well, let me just have you start with that one. Is it fair that we put the onus of a stock market drop or, or uh, on this, on the president? It is, it is just about equally correct of us to put the onus of a drop as it is to give him credit for the rise. Um, and uh, you can't have, it's very unusual uh, in, in the history of American presidents uh, for them to, uh, for, for any president to tie himself so closely to an upward market um, simply because the market has ups and downs and it's affected by a lot of different events. Um, there are almost always corrections, if you will, which means drops of in the neighborhood of 10, 10% um, uh, after long uh, increases. And we have not seen one since his presidency. We have seen a remarkable rise in the value of, of stocks um, some of that, I think, in fairness, one can attribute to optimism about what his policies might be and what they might do, uh, and some of it just uh, the, the the good luck of timing. Having said that, after this long the, the, this long rise of more than twenty five percent, which is extraordinary over a period of of uh, fourteen months. Um, it was inevitable that there would that there would be uh, some adjustments. It's pretty dramatic when you lose a thousand points in a day, even though percentage-wise it's not even in the top ten. Um, coming on the heels of of 660 points the day before, so here we are now up 500 points. <laughs> this is truly uh, a roller coaster in the market. Having said that. <laughs> I don't disagree with the White House statement that that the economic indicators are generally very good, very strong. Sure. So we've got kind of this flat land of the economy and then this roller coaster of the stock market. So, Sharmila, let me go to you on this. I mean, is the Trump bump real? I mean, are we really seeing a new era in our economic growth? based on Donald Trump and his ability to understand business and make business thrive? I wouldn't call it a Trump bump. I would call it a GOP bump. I think that, you know, you saw that on the, the day after the election, the stock market rallied. I think it went up about 200 points. And that's all, as uh, Alan said, optimism for GOP policies, right? The, the thought of deregulation and corporate tax cuts, you know, all these <laughs> business-friendly policies that a GOP administration entails are, I think, what's driving the rally in the markets versus anything to do with Donald Trump himself. I think it's more Alan, would call it a Paul Ryan bump than it is to call it a Donald Trump bump. Alan, would you agree with that? Well, I would agree that I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it a Ryan versus Trump. I think Trump would. You have to acknowledge uh, his leadership here, um, for better or worse. But I think I do. But I do agree that it it was a, a Republican bump. Um, more than than simply uh, Donald Trump. He's the leader of the party. He was out there um, uh, uh, talking, uh, <laughs> talking the big talk. Um, 
and and uh, having said that, they, they ran into a string of failures in terms of policy, but the market was feeling uh, positive about uh, about this Republican uh, administration, if you will, from the president to the to the to the Congress. Uh, the hope for a um, a tax bill, and then the expectation, which to some extent is being realized, uh, although not nearly as much as uh, the president claims, of of deregulation, of slowed down uh, new regulation. Um, the, the more to the point, though, and uh, the the economy was poised um, after a very slow recovery, steady but slow disappointingly slow and i'm not blaming president obama for it it's a function of a lot of factors beyond the power of a president or a congress um but but the uh, recovery from the 2008 and 9 recession had had been steady but slow and and it it, it was certainly poised for a a a change for a bump and and it happened to coincide with uh, the elections of uh, 2016, and um, and it happened to coincide with with a, 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 an all Republican outcome. You add those two things together, and I think there is a bit of a bump that that has got at least some linkage to the Republicans taking over. Um, presidents are the ones who are the t- at the top. They tend to get the most credit or the most blame. But back to your original point, if he's going to try to uh, pat himself on the back for how great the, uh, the stock market is doing, then he's going to have to <laughs> to take hits um, when there when there's a correction. I think what what's most important, though, you know, not that the markets when they move a thousand points in a day, and it did cover a range today of over of over a thousand because it was down right. by it was down by it was down eleven hundred this morning. Four, four or five hundred this morning, and it went, then right. it went up, and it ended up uh, up five hundred. So a total range, uh, pretty pretty extraordinary. But the fundamentals are strong. They didn't start strong when, uh, when uh, at the time of the 2016 elections, they were already strong. And knowing who was going to be president, that eliminated some of the uncertainty, and it continued uh, to improve. And now. And now, and we talked about this with the big tax bill, it, it was not the ideal time, in some of uh, our opinion, for uh, a, a big tax bill. Because the uh, economy was actually doing quite well and we were approaching what most economists believe to be close to, uh, uh, to full employment, um, and wages were actually beginning to increase. Well, Sharmila, is there... I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I mean, we have been on a long, high, drunk, if you will, economically for even bef- starting before Trump taking office. Is at, at some point we hear the word correction, but is this economy sustainable, or are we in fact looking at a bubble and we're going to have a hangover that's really going to hurt? Well, I think that that's what's being debated right now. Is this a correction or is this the first sign of a downturn? I think one thing that economists are 
are worried about is the possibility of inflation. When you get rising wages, you get the you get the danger of inflation, and you need Fed intervention in order to make sure that prices remain stable. So I think it's it's yet to be seen whether whether this is just a bump in the road or if this is an indicator, you know, that as you said, Justin, things are getting overheated, things are getting overvalued, and now the market's going to correct itself because people realize that this this growth surge is not sustainable. Alan Moore, your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> indications are that growth this quarter is going to be extremely high for the economy as a whole. Some some folks predicting for the quarter uh, rates as high as as five percent, which is which would would really be out there. That is not a sustainable rate, but it's a potentially achievable rate o- over a short period of time. Charmel is exactly right about the fears of inflation. And what, what we've seen is when you get full employment and when you get increases in, real increases in wages, um, uh, you, you, <laughs> ironically, that good news um, makes um, the, the investor community nervous because it, interest rates will inevitably rise. The, the, the interest rate on the 10-year Treasury bond is the highest it has been now for quite a few years. It's approaching 3%. Now, historically, that's not a huge deal, but when it was down under 2 for a long time, and now it's up about 2.75, 2.8, that that is a a signal that interest rates will continue to rise. The Feds will, will need to raise their interest rates, Goods and services are, that, that, that are purchased through lending are going to cost more, particularly houses and large consumer goods, and that tends to have a negative impact on demand. Um, it also increases the cost of uh, serving the U.S. Uh, uh, deficit um, and, and uh, draws more annual federal spending towards paying for the interest on the debt uh, and uh, increased borrowing costs, which this year are now expected to be in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars, a trillion dollar deficit, um, which, which scares the heck out of anybody who knows anything about uh, economics and is trying to, to uh, have a long range plan and hope for a fairly stable over the long term and sustainable uh, U.S. economy. We're overspending. We're spending way more than we're, we're taking in uh, in taxes, and a pe- there's, a, there's a price to be paid for that, and it shows up in uh, essentially in interest rates and makes everything more expensive and feeds inflation, uh, undercuts value of savings. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole host of negatives associated with that, even though we're right now at a time of of significant, steady uh, economic growth and, and mostly good news. Uh, Charmelin, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, for Alan's point, I was going to say many people are afraid that President Trump's tax cut uh, is going to exacerbate that significantly. <laughs> uh, Alan, I'll, I'll let you respond to that one because I heard the guffaw no. in your voice. No, no, no. I, I didn't actually respond. I mean, we, we. I talked about that back when we were when they were passing the tax bill. But I, 
I personally favored changes in the corporate taxes. I didn't see the need uh, on the individual side politically. That's really hard to do. And the timing I felt was wrong uh, in, in any, in any event, having said that um, the estimates for the net increase in the deficit of over 10 years were of, of that bill using the best estimates was in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars. <clears throat> that's our, that's the annual deficit we're expecting this year. So trying to put it in perspective, not that adding a hundred million dollars uh, to, to a deficit um, is, is, is meaningless, but it was not a mass. It was not the kind of massive tax cut that, 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 that the, that the critics were trying to paint it as in the meantime, um, the the when you have a pretty full economy you don't really want economic stimulus you certainly don't need it the, the times you need that are when when you're in a recession downturn and so on um uh, having said that um the the tax cut is as we're seeing feeding um the feeding a lot of positives it's increasing paychecks and it's causing a lot of companies to make changes that that uh handing out handing out bonuses um pouring money into uh uh pension plans if they if they're one of the companies in america that, that still has one and 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 there are fewer and fewer that do um so, in talking about plans for moving plants back here building plants expanding plants here um it it you know that it, it, it it's not all negative it's certainly not all positive it's complicated but the the bigger trends are not the tax bill. Um, the, the the bigger trends are uh, the constant reminder that we're spending beyond our means, and and then unfortunately nobody seems to worry about it that much. At least not enough to talk about it in a sustained way. It's not on the president's uh, uh, radar at all. Well, Sean, well, let's talk about this for a second because you know Alan brings up a good point. Uh, you know. Tax break does not inc- does not equal income for the government, which means that if we're still going to be short, we've got issues on deficit spending that are going to be occurring. We increase the debt load on the uh, on the federal treasury. Uh, at the same time, it seems like we're continuing to play with house money on. The market size, even the, even in an anomaly, we're seeing strong bond growth. At the same time, we're seeing volatility even on a growth day with the stock market. Should Americans be nervous about their investments long term based on the Bacchanal economically we're dealing with right this day? No, I mean, I don't agree with the fear-mongering that's happening in the media that happened yesterday. Is your retirement account safe? Yes, it's safe. You know, over the long term, the U.S. economy, as Alan said, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are strong, and you don't have to worry about your retirement savings. You know, we're not at 2008 levels yet. You know, if you were planning to retire yesterday, maybe that wasn't great for you. But I think long term, you're, you know, uh, this isn't we aren't yet at the levels of precipitating a crisis as we were in. Well, let me jump. Let me just jump in real quick, Charmley. Is this sustainable? Is this level of growth sustainable? I, you yeah. heard Alan say, I, I don't believe it is. Right. I mean, a 5% so what, growth what is, is almost what, a developing economy, 
but so let me let me let me go back to that for a second though. And and Alan, I want to go back to you on the same question. Is it, you know you Alan, you brought up it was not sustainable. Sharmila, you seem to agree with him. If it's not sustainable, okay. At what point do we get into dangerous economic territory where the crash no, is no, just no, no, so no, no, no. hard? No, let me let me say sorry, sorry. Let me say what's not sustainable. Five percent growth is not sustainable. That's going to be a one okay. quarter kind of phenomenon. So that, that's the only thing I meant that was not sustainable. We oh okay. The, the, the indicators the indicators are very good, are very positive. Unemployment is down in one four point one percent. We know that 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 continues. That number continues to to underreport. There there's still there are still many pockets of this country that aren't doing very well. There are still a lot of people who either can't find work or work in two jobs um, or, or who are just generally underemployed. Uh, so the, the, it's a very uneven um, uh, economy these days, and that feeds into the political dynamic that helped get president in 2016. You've got, you've, you know, particularly you've got the, 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 the West Coast and the East Coast um, doing pretty darn well and various parts of places around the country doing just fine. But when you, it, there's an urban rural divide, there's a, there's a coasts versus uh, uh, middle part of the, of the U S divide. Um, and, and so it's one thing to, to say, gee, the economy is going gangbusters. Um, we're growing unemployment's way down, wages are rising, finally. Um, and you go to many parts of the country, much of it Trump country, from the election and say, where? We're not feeling it. We don't, we so, don't see any new jobs. We don't see any factories coming back here. And I'm not just talking about coal mines, which were a big part of, of the narrative uh, uh, that the president was trying to use, but just in general, um, we're hearing about uh, new 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 plants, new investments, but they're not in our area. But, but right, Alan, I would echo. Let, let, let me just jump in real quick, and Sharma, I'll go to you on this. You know, we you know we're hearing kind of a political discussion that I don't think mirrors reality. You know, to Alan's point, we're seeing manufacturing come back, but not to the rural areas. I would I would argue that you know we're seeing uh, Volvo plants in eastern South Carolina that are still being developed. Uh, we have the Volkswagen move to Char uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, Honda in South Carolina, BMW, all the major car manufacturers, not just domestic, but international car manufacturers are bringing their manufacturing back here, creating high-paying jobs in some rural areas like rural Alabama, as we saw with Mercedes-Benz. So is there is there some narrative that we're missing as far as uh a an economic sustainable growth that's going to benefit everybody in America not just uh Wall Street or the coastal uh, the coastal heavy population areas. Sharmila, I'll start with you. Well, Justin, I, I think you're right that you know manufacturing is coming back to, to the U.S., but one thing you're missing is that these companies are bringing fewer jobs than they used to with 
in population centers that have larger amounts of people, right? All these population centers, their population has grown, you know, since the days of the economic crisis. And now you have, you have these manufacturing jobs coming back, but, it, but, you know, automation still exists. And so, you know, a plant that pre might have, you know, 40 years ago employed 30,000 people is now maybe only going to employ, employ eight. So yes, there is some marginal growth there, but it's not, it's it's not bringing back this you know manufacturing boom that I think uh, Donald Trump promised promised on the campaign trail. The other thing that I think is important is you know Alan hit the nail on the head when he said that employment figures are not the only part of the picture when you think about um, when you think about people's quality of life and whether or not you know economic situations are evening across the country. Because yes, you have you know I, I remember reading an article talking about African American employment when the president you know, recited the figures that African-American employment is at its lowest level in history. And that may be true, but what is the quality of that employment? Are people fully employed to the, you know, are they earning the maximum wages possible? Or as Alan said, are they working, are they employed but working two jobs just to make ends meet? And that's well, you know, the disparity I think that the, economic, that the economic indicators that the president keeps touting aren't really showing. You know, it's ironic that you bring up the African-American and even the Hispanic job numbers uh, almost on the day that uh, or within a few days of Donald Trump promoting the fact that he himself is responsible for creating the lowest unemployed numbers in unemployment numbers in the history of record keeping in the United States for African-American jobs. African-American unemployment went up almost a full point from, uh, I believe it was uh, 6.2 to almost 7. Same thing with, with Hispanic unemployment. Alan Moore, is, is the president just tone deaf on what he believes full employment is versus sectorized employment, or is it unfair to take away the success of what many economists say is a state of full employment for the nation. Well, so, so defining on un full unemployment uh, or full employment is, is a, is a tricky matter. And when you, and when you bring politicians into the mix, so uh, you're going to find these, uh, these, uh, these conflicts of interest, if you will, from those trying to define and explain uh, with those who are trying to defend uh, policies that they represent. Having said that, there's a certain irony in the fact that during the campaign, when the employment figures were continuing to improve, um, the, pres the president was redefining them and saying those numbers were bogus and they understated. And he was, it, although it happens to be true, uh, typical of him, he will greatly exaggerate a truth. He will take... Uh, a kernel, if you will, of truth, and then turn it into a bushel, and you you can't really do that in fairness. Now, having said that, here he is now, where those underlying um, uh, challenges of measurement still exist, where <laughs> where he will want to say we're at the at the lowest level of unemployment uh, in in a generation. Um, I am not familiar with the numbers you're talking about for African Americans and and Hispanic, and we we can look them up. It doesn't matter. I think everyone. I think they're all down, um, and and so he's once again he's now embracing them and trying to take credit 
But these things are volatile and they move and, and are, 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 are vulnerable to, uh, uh, <laughs> to, to market forces, to outside events, um, to natural events. Uh, but but uh, he's chosen to uh, to uh, put a lot of his his um, his own political credibility out there during improving economic times and simply trying to take uh, credit for it. The more you try to take credit, the more you own it. And when things turn, the harder it's going to be to say, well, those are things beyond my control. He certainly can't at this point also – He's not in any position to blame President Obama if there's a downturn. Um, in, in the case right. of President Obama, he was a master at continuing to blame George Bush basically until he completed his second term. Because right. the recession, which was not George Bush's recession, even though it was it started on his watch, hence it became his. It was labeled as his. The, the roots of that uh, go way back, and there were lots of things to uh, attribute that to, including – questionable decisions by politicians of both sides, but also uh, some, some stupid decisions and, and bad luck. Um, and, and now it's, uh, it's the Trump economy, um, uh, for, for better or worse. I think he's in okay shape for a while, um, barring events, you know, new events that, 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 that we can't really see um, at, at this point. Uh, and he is going to have to hope that Republicans will be able to ride a strong economy. It doesn't have to keep growing. The market doesn't have to keep growing at this rate if, if it stabilizes. Um, two years in to a to a, an administration being able to say the stock market's up 24 percent from the time I, I I took office and 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 everybody benefits from that. Um, and and maybe their take-home pay is higher because of the tax bill. And if it really is the economy stupid in elections, and, and in many ways right. it is, at least for many people, you know, it's it's not a foregone conclusion that it's a wipeout in November for Republicans. We'll see. Well, let me things change on a dime. Things a, a week ago we were true. talking about what 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 was going to be in the State of the Union, um, and today. Uh, we're talking about <laughs> this plunge in the market and then this bump today of 500 right. points. That's not nothing. Well, so who now, knows where we'll be next let's, week? Uh, let's also welcome in. He is the one, retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is a man we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, let me go to you on this. You've been listening to the discussions. Is is it is it right for us to hold – Donald Trump accountable for the, the slight bump up in African American and minority unemployment, or is it better to give him praise for the fact that we're at 4.6 uh, or 4.4, which is what some of the economists think might be the uh, adjusted rate? Either way, we're still at what would largely be considered full unemployment in America. Which, where do we go with that? Uh, I have to agree with Alan uh, and Sharmila uh, in that at point at which he says, I caused this, uh, he gets the negatives and the positives. Um, you know, what I thought was particularly interesting, going back to the State of the Union address, is when he was talking about um, the record, uh, his, his, his view that there was a record low 
in African-American unemployment, uh, the whole Congressional Black Caucus uh, did not applaud. And I think the reason they did not applaud is because they didn't agree with that number, nor does anyone who truly understands the state of uh, uh, unemployment among persons of color uh, in this country. Um, I, I saw a, a tweet later on by Newt, uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, former Speaker of the House, that was chastising them for not standing up, and uh, the response was something to the effect that they're not going to applaud something that they know that's not true. Um, I, I want to go back to something, uh, and it was regard to, in regard to the, the, the plants that are coming back in, uh, into the country. Um, we, we've talked about this, this, uh, this, this phrase on the air a couple of times, and that is the less you know about something, the simpler it must be. The idea that you can just drop a high-tech plant into a uh, heretofore uh, rural area and expect that the people in that area are going to be immediately unemployable is a specious argument. Um, I had an encounter with uh, a, a person on, on an airplane not, not many months ago from the state of South Carolina. She was working for the governor. and Her job was to run around the country to try and find uh, employees to come to the Boeing plant uh, that had just moved to South Carolina. Why is that? Because they found that while the plant uh, moved to uh, South Carolina and that uh, it, they, they received the tax benefit um, by moving from uh, Washington to South Carolina, they were finding that the educational level of the, the local populace was not in a state that they would be able to get the numbers of people into the plant to be as effective and as efficient as they needed to be. So there's yet another dynamic of you know, who are you going to hire in the area? Is it really going to cause those numbers to come up? Or will, or will you see, as in the case of some of the Boeing uh, 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 workers, a migration from relatively high-cost uh, living areas in Seattle to, to, to the Charleston, South Carolina area. But the real question is how many more jobs from the people in South Carolina uh, were able to be uh, – to uh, how many more people from the South – people in South Carolina were able to find jobs in those plants. And I think you're going to see the same thing with Mercedes-Benz moving to Alabama. Well, I, I, let me just also clarify one thing uh, that uh, Alan had pointed out. You know, we wanted to get we, – we do try and deal with facts contrary to uh, Alan's popular beliefs sometimes. But the facts that we have is in uh, the black community – Black unemployment in January, December 2017 was at 6.8. Uh, in January 2018, Department of Labor reported that at 7.7. That's almost a full point rise in unemployment. Uh, we have uh, December 2017 Hispanic unemployment at 4.9. Uh, basically, January 2018, 5.0. Not a dramatic increase, but an increase nonetheless. Uh, Sharmila Chari, those numbers being what they are, is is this something that should concern Americans that there's almost uh, almost a, a passing in the night of the two unemployment numbers? American unemployment continues to see record lows, but we're seeing. African American and Hispanic unemployment rise. Should that be a concern? Yeah, of course. I think to all you know, Americans who care about fairness and equality in the workplace, it should be a concern. I think it's it's a little early right now when you don't understand the the root cause of this unemployment. Is it 
you know, is it for sinister reasons such as discrimination, or is it for more, uh, you know, sort of boring demographic reasons such as the more aging population of uh, of African Americans and Hispanics that may be aging out of the workforce, and therefore the unemployment numbers are higher. So I think that. Yes, it's something to be monitoring and to see if whether some of President Trump's other policies are contributing to this phenomenon. But I think bef you, need to, you need to see the, the phenomenon over a sustained period of quarters before you can really – before I think there's real cause for concern. Uh, let me go uh, to Alan Moore real quick. Alan, one of the things that some economists are saying that might be driving this – Mr. Toad's wild ride that we're seeing on Wall Street is we are seeing a transition. Uh, last week was the last full week of former Fed chair Jesse Yellen, and we are now seeing the new regime of Jay Powell coming in uh, as the new Fed chair, who is President Trump's selection for that position. It, it, is the change in the Fed chairs enough to at least see this type of volatility and will eventually stabilize on this? Uh, it, no, this is not about a change in the Fed chair. Um, it, it, we, we have no reason to believe that the, that the new chair is going to operate or act significantly different from the old one. Uh, so I think it was, it was close, to a, close to a zero impact. Uh, um, having said that, we will see, we will learn, we will – uh, watch what's going on. If if we see increased inflation trends, and the Fed has to step in and be more active, uh, modify its behavior, increase interest rates some, um, it, there may be a, a, a question. But right now, uh, although I think the, the 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 Wall Street was comfortable with Yellen, we've known who the new you know the the, the new person. Um, was known months ago, um, and so I don't I don't think that uh, that that simple changeover was really a contributor. I think it was you know oddly these 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 better better than expected job numbers and the increase in in the uh, uh, the rate on on Treasury bills. Let me say one more thing though on on these unemployment numbers. There's no difference. There is no material difference between a 4.9% and a 5.0% rate. Um, the, the numbers are simply too imprecise. Um, the the African American number, I don't I don't know the explanation. I'm curious to know whether that was were there a bunch of people who had seasonal jobs uh, at Christmas time and then uh, and then lost them. Um, it, it's, uh, but it speaks to Ken's point about why, uh, well, partially why, uh, African American members of, of, uh, of Congress, um, would have sat stone faced, uh, at the president. I don't think there's anything the president could have said on any subject that would have caused many Democrats to be anything other than stone faced. They did grudgingly, uh, politely applaud when he called for bipartisanship, something that we all predicted he would do last week at this very time. And then we all predicted <coughs> that, <laughs> that it was either certain or highly probable um, that he would undo uh, the, the, the content of that message 
within days by tweeting something, which, of course, he's both tweeted and spoken. He, he, he tweeted, uh, uh, tweeted trash about, about, uh, uh, about Schiff, uh, about a couple of others, and then he, of course, made these very bizarre and unfortunate and, and, and even grotesque comments um, in Ohio when he, when he suggested that it was both un-American and, yes, possibly even treasonous of Democrats well, we're going to talk about that. Applaud him. Stand for him. We're going to talk about that. Oh my God, Alan. We're going to talk about that. You're jumping ahead. We'll get. We got a lot to get to, and still got another three quarters of the show to do. Hey, uh, Sharma, let me just check in with you real quick and get the Democratic take. Because is is Jerome Powell, or as his friends call him Jay, is Jerome Powell something that should make the uh, the simple American investor in a 401k plan nervous, or is it something that we're not even going to be able to see any difference on a day-to-day basis? I think that it will be the latter. I think that if Jerome Powell um, continues... Sorry. sorry. I think if uh, Jerome Powell continues a lot of Janet Yellen's policies, then the economy will remain in good shape. Okay, very good. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about the latest on memos. If, if, if you're the House Intel Committee, you have a Republican majority, you have a, a Democratic minority, and apparently they like sending memos. We're going to talk about those memos when we come back. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here live from Washington, D.C. on the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about memos because there's a lot of them flowing back and forth between the Capitol, the House Intelligence Committee, and the White House. And now apparently everybody in the world. Uh, In case you missed it last week, uh, the House Intelligence Committee, under the leadership of California Republican Devin Nunez, decided it would be a good idea to take a memo based on a FISA warrant that was issued, apparently, in response to the investigation into Carter Page's involvement with the Russian government. Uh, That FISA warrant was reviewed by the Intelligence Committee in closed-door sessions and in uh, secure environments. However, Devin Nunez decided to write a memo with his majority staff, send that over to the White House, ask for him to declassify the information in there, and send it out. Well, not to be outdone, uh, the Democratic, the minority leader on the committee, one uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, decided that not to be outdone, we're going to do our own memo, and we're going to call this what it was. Now, let's be clear. The memo that was originally put out by Chairman Nunez was, in fact, uh, it, I guess the good word was discouragement, came from the Department of Justice and the FBI, as well as other former and current intelligence uh, leadership in the intelligence community. Uh, regardless, that discouragement fell on deaf ears and it went out anyway this has caused a big big storm the president said that the the Devin Nunez memo in fact vindicates him and shows that there is no collusion no involvement of Russia in the 2016 election Uh, others beg to differ Uh, Alan Moore as always our fact checker I'm going to start with you what do we know to be true about the memo that Devin Nunez put out as it relates to the uh, the contentions of the White House that, in fact, this does clear President Trump of everything? So what, what, what we know about the, 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 the Nunez memo is that there is way less there than – we had been led to expect that there might be so little that it constitutes a significant embarrassment, not just to Nunez, but to the committee, the intelligence committee, which voted initially to have it be shared. Um, That's what occurred here. It voted on a partisan, on a party line vote. Um, and and Adam Schiff, uh, the the minority head of that committee, um, is somebody that we see way 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 too much of on uh, on talk shows, um, uh, said no 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 there are material problems with this there are exclusions um, there's a, there's a whole you, they cherry picked information they exaggerated information they mischaracterized what's even in their own memo and we we've got a memo that that uh takes issue with the nunez memo and yesterday the full committee unanimously republicans and democrats recommended that it be uh uh made public 
it, it's going now through the same process that the Nunez memo did, meaning it goes to to the White House. It's already been to FBI and Justice, and the White House gets final say on whether it's got a problem with releasing this. My view overall of this is that I think that Nunez and Schiff uh, uh, have have not done the job that their colleagues selected them to do. They should step down. And because the Republicans insisted on uh, or or agreed to put out the piece of nothing or near nothing um, uh, that Nunez uh, staff had put together, they should all resign. What, what a, it, it's a significant, major embarrassment to that committee, particularly to the Republicans on the committee. But get rid of Schiff, too, because he's the guy who's out there blabbing more at inappropriate times about inappropriate things uh, with, with this level of, of high dudgeon and discouragement. So, yes – he gets under my skin. Nunez should have not only recused himself uh, from the from the Russia investigation, but he should have gotten off the committee. And and I think Paul Ryan has let us all down by standing off to the side and allowing this to happen. So, uh, Admiral Ken, going off of uh, Alan's comments, is this in fact a dangerous precedent? that Chairman Nunez on the intelligence and the Republicans on the, on the committee with the support of their staff, is this a dangerous precedence that they're doing just arbitrarily putting out national security data on a political whim? They have politicized what heretofore has been for the most part an apolitical process. And, um, and when you think back to to, 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 to to what's gone on here. Um, you know, CNN, MSNBC, and I don't think Fox has done it yet. I haven't seen it on Fox. I try to watch all of them. Uh, have, 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 have shown this video over and over again of just about everybody in the president's inner circle, including the president, disavowing any knowledge of who Carter Page was. I mean, you know, to a person. Um, President uh, Corey Lewandowski, uh, the 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 speaker, the the press secretary uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I mean, uh, even even um, um, the the lawyer lady whose name I can't remember right now, uh, Kellyanne Conway. Sorry, have all disavowed, been on tape disavowing who Carter Page was, and then to 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 try and carry the president's water by. Saying that that members of the FBI, in essence, broke the law to to to, to go after uh, Trump with with a with a pardon me trumped up uh, FISA warrant is just beyond beyond the pale. Um, and, and I think you know to Alan's point, I think whatever credibility Chairman Nunes had, uh, he lost it, uh, and he put he put a perfect exclamation mark on it yesterday when he said when he said that the president. Has never met uh, Papadopoulos. When there's pictures of the president sitting at a table with this guy, when the president named him as a key member of his foreign of uh, uh, foreign policy uh, advisory staff, I mean, I don't know what else what else we need here. 
Um, I, I think Alan's right that, that, um, that Paul Ryan, um, unless there's some sort of Machiavellian play uh, going on here, has basically kind of stepped to the side and, and let this happen. And it's, it's sad. And, you know, the thing that I, I, I can't get away from is, is one, you know, the, what I know of the Pfizer process, and, and I'm going to bow to Sharmila, and if um, Dan's on the line, I'll, I'll let them talk about what goes into it. But, I, you know, what I know of it, it's a fairly, fairly arduous bar to cross. There is not a Pfizer judge on the planet that would let a warrant go out just based on a political, a, a political report from an unnamed political source uh, after someone who's a major pres- – uh, who's a presidential candidate. Two, you know, I, I really would like to see, uh, even if it's partially redacted, uh, McCabe's testimony. You know, there's there's two schools of thought here. One, he said that the that the FISA warrant was the main reason. Uh, this is what Nunes and his crew are saying, and, and and Adam Schiff is saying, no, no, it was part of, it, and there was other there was other other testimony. And I think the thing that I I can't get away from is, you know, the FBI agents in the FBI. They take the same oath of office that you and I have taken, Justin, and you know it's proven by the Fat Leonard scandal that's going on in the Navy right now. For every dishonest person uh, in in that organization, they are standing shoulder to shoulder with about four or five honest people who will call them out and and and, and call them down. This is ridiculous. It's it's unsat it's unsatisfactory on, on, on every level you can think of. Sharmila, you know the. The Democrats under uh, Minority Leader or Ranking Member Adam Schiff uh, had an opportunity to take the high road, and it seems like they just got drugged down the rabbit hole and felt like, well, yeah, we've got memos too. Is that type of childish response really something that benefits the Democratic Party, particularly as we go into a midterm election, does this hurt the Democrats going into 2018? Oh, it certainly doesn't help them. I, you know, I have to agree with Alan that I think both parties whiffed the ball here. The for you know for Trump's genius as a messaging person, I think that the White House and the House Republicans have really screwed up the messaging of this memo release and how it re- truly ties back into the Russian investigation and any sort of exoneration of the president. I think that they've completely bungled that message and the and the democrats instead of focusing on the waste of government resources entailed in producing you know to quote Donald Trump Jr a nothing burger instead one went ahead and released their own memo thinking that thinking that that will somehow vindicate them when i think you're you know it doesn't and it just creates more inefficiency and more waste and i think it reinforces the perception that neither party is really looking out for the people and that they're both just engaged in this tug of war to see who's right and who can score the most political points. Admiral Ken, why do we give a crap about Carter Page? Well, we, I, I don't think, I, I think the reason that we, we, we give a crap about Carter Page is only as it relates to the validity of the Pfizer process. Um, the, the, the whole argument of Devin Nunes and in, in, um, in the Republican members of the um, uh, of the Intelligence Committee is that the FBI is part of some sort of deep state um, conspiracy to bring down the President of the United States. Secret Society. And that, Don't forget the Secret Society. 
Okay, and, 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 and some sort of secret society to bring down the President of the United States, and that if they can punch a hole into the belief that the FISA process um, is not being uh, applied to equally, then that allows them to basically turn around and say, well, if the FBI is tainted in this regard, then anything that the special prosecutor comes up with that may be even associated with um, evidence obtained through a FISA warrant is therefore also tainted fruit of the poison tree, as I understand it. Um, again, I go back to this. One, um, every member of the president's inner circle disavowed this guy, and so now they're claiming him as one of them. So which lie am I supposed to believe, the one that they told X number of months ago or the one that they're telling now? There, you know, at the end of the day, this whole thing has just got so, so, so many, um, so much, so much BS associated with it that, you know, I, I even the most should be asking the question. Okay, so if they're not guilty of anything, then why in God's name do they tell so many lies so often about what they were doing and when when they were doing it? And and here's what kills me is Carter Page, who claimed to be part of the inner circle during the campaign and afterwards, this morning's telling George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America, no, I've actually never spoken to Trump. They, they, they don't even know, they can't even keep their own story straight, which is amazing. Alan, or, or, or Sharma, let me go to you. I'm going to ask yeah. you the same question. Why do we care about Carter Page? I guess should I go first? Yeah, go ahead. I I think that you know to 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 piggyback on what Admiral Ken is saying, it's because it's just more evidence of the lies that this administration is putting out, right? Donald Trump named Carter Page as an advisor. Carter Page is in interviews saying, "Oh, I've had many meetings with Trump and have learned a great deal from him." Right? This I mean you know, Admiral Ken said it correctly. These guys can't even get their stories straight, and I think it just adds more fuel to this fire of, like, why are you lying if there's nothing to hide? What is happening here that you are – that suddenly this administration is trying to take facts that have been in front of us for months and months and suddenly say, no, that's not true. That never happened. You know, it's like they're all saying the sky is green, the sky is green, and if you don't believe it, it's fake news. When we look at, you know, the memos and we look at Carter Page, you know, situation and the long line of just bad decision making happening within the White House regarding this issue, uh, it, it seems to me, and Alan Moore, I'll go to you on this, it seems to me that these are the actions that they're being so reactionary to everything coming out that instead of staving off disaster, they're just digging a deeper hole and we're just on Carter page. Does this hole get deeper? The closer in we get, when we start talking about Flynn, we start talking about Steve Bannon. Dare we even get into a deeper hole? If we start talking about Jared and Ivanka, Alan Moore. Well, it's hard not to believe there's there, there's not something else here because Carter Page 
in and of itself, he doesn't really warrant whatever his relationship is. We know it's something, and we know it's probably not much, okay? So it's a lie to say it's nothing, and it's a lie to say that he was a close confidant of the president for, for, for years, or for that matter, for other senior people. That we don't know. But he was close enough and involved enough that he was somebody to take a look at. Now, now, a couple of possibilities here. It's it's conceivable that when they were surveilling um, Page, that they may have inadvertently, because this is what happens, um, picked up some communication with um, others in the circle. Could have been Flynn. Could have been Jared. Could have been Trump Jr. Could have been Manafort. I don't know. Um, and and so uh, the it, having if if the warrant against um, uh, Page was somehow illegitimate, then arguably anything they would have picked up in that search would have been illegitimate, at least for the for the purposes of 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 a legal procedure. But that's irrelevant in terms of trying to protect the United States from uh, from foreign influence the the irony here is that that there's a very little being said about the FISA process itself one person in the house so far as i know has read the FISA warrant only one Trey Gowdy um that, that stuff is super secret there's this assumption made that the Steele dossier paid for originally by Republican opponents of Trump and then picked up and paid for later by the by by Clinton uh, campaign um, was uh, was somehow completely and totally illegitimate. Now, there's a lot of hearsay and stuff in there, some of which is sort of slanderous and got some attention at at one time. And then there's other stuff from other sources. This guy Steele had been a source to the FBI. He was a Brit. He's, he's operated in these circles. He's got a lot of contacts inside Russia. So he's gathering information from all around. And apparently page keeps popping up in, in his, uh, in his searches. So aspects of the dossier talk about page just because they came from Steele, who may or may not have known who was paying for the work he was doing, all paid for through this GPS fusion outfit, he puts it in the he puts it into his reports. Just because it's from him doesn't mean that it's wrong. Um, but we're going to shoot the messenger here. We're going to we're going to discredit him. Um, but he comes up with some sufficient stuff to that the GPS fusion decides it should share with the FBI because this is some fairly serious stuff. Page years ago had acknowledged doing some work for the Russians, but low level information. He was trying to make money, make connections, who knows what he was a right target for, uh, for the, for the, for the Russians, uh, uh, as a potential ally, they knew him and suddenly he's involved in this political campaign. Let's go talk further to him. So there were various reasons to take a look at him. Some of those reasons presumably grew out of what was ever in this steel dossier. So 
A FISA warrant, though, isn't just a few guesses and a few rumors. It is a very detailed legalistic process on, on top of the, where on, the, on top of the protect fact, individuals, you, you, I mean, you have to, you have to demonstrate that there is real reason to think that the person that you want to surveil is in fact worth surveilling that he's in fact, and, doing and, and by the way, Alan, it's contrary to us law. Alan, let's also be clear that the fact still remains. They have to go in front of a judge this is a warrant application. They still have to show some probable cause. The burden is not as much uh, than in other criminal instances, but they still have to show some probable cause to even receive the warrant from the judge. Let's be clear about this. There is due process in this. I, I want to go to Sharmila real quick. What well, is well, the let, yeah, let me just, let me let me. Let, I'm sorry. Let me just finish this one thought though. That, so. So okay. there's all this talk about how the Steele dossier—it's it's, it's as though the Steele dossier caused the FISA warrant. We don't—is the—is the heart and soul of the FISA warrant. We don't know that. Nunez has never read the FISA uh, seen the uh, application. So, so, so he—he's he, he, making these charges with and, and lacking uh, key pieces of information like. What's in the FISA warrant? And he's ignoring the fact that it was renewed three times. When you renew it, you don't rely on your original request. You rely on the surveillance, the information you're picking right. up right. while surveilling. So right. there, there, there was a total of a, a year's worth of surveillance coming into the, this current year. And against Carter Page right. because it kept getting renewed. Admiral Ken, what is the biggest what's or go ahead first, Admiral Ken, go ahead and with your comment and then I want to go to you for the question. No, no, go ahead, Justin, please. Uh, so let me go with you, Admiral Ken, what is the bigger of the stories? Is it the disclosure of national security for political reasons? Is it delegitimizing the FISA war process and the information you get from FISA, or is it Carter Page is just the tip of the iceberg on a much bigger problem for the White House? Um, I Again, I, I think that um, politicization of the FISA process for me uh, is, is a big deal because everything else will be affected by that if, um, if the, 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 the country – and, and for lack of a better way of saying, the body politic uh, starts to doubt that this is a, uh, um, a, a process that's being done in a legal and fair manner. Because all those other things you just mentioned, they suffer if that is the case. Um, you know, I, I've got a solution, you know, I think, to, to some of this. Uh, to your point, um, m many of the folks that are making commentary um, from the, from the uh, intelligence community as well as the president. Well, maybe not the president, because I'm pretty sure he, he may have probably read the warrant, which is probably why he's so uh, liquored up to stop it, um, is that, one, um, nearly every large government document I have seen in the last 15 years, and I've seen a bunch, um, has an executive summary attached to it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's basically a, 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 a fluffy table of contents. 
So while we may never get to see uh, Andrew McCabe's testimony, um, this is the, the quite frankly, all of this can be put to rest if they released a redacted version of the executive summary, because that would show one without compromising um, uh, processes or methods the fact that there was more than one thing on that list that compelled the FBI to go to a FISA judge to get a warrant. Because yeah. Nunes's uh, contention is that the FBI went to a FISA judge with only the dossier in hand to obtain a warrant, which flies in the face of anything that anybody knows about the FISA process. Yeah. Sharmila, uh, same question to you. In your opinion, what's the bigger story? Is it the uh, Carter Page is the tip of the iceberg problem for the White House? Is it the politicalization of national security for just stupid political purposes, or is it delegitimizing the FISA process? I would say B. I think I agree with uh, with Ken that the scarier story here is the Trump administration's systematic discrediting of any organization that holds a view opposite to what the president wants them to wants them to say. That's the that's where you come into, and we've said this on the show before. That's where you come into autocratic territory, right? The fact that the president is so actively trying to delegitimize these institutions that are standing up to him and that are supposed to serve as his checks, whether it's the free press, whether it's the, the Department of Justice, um, whether it's the FBI, that, that streak, that authoritarian and sort of despotic streak is what should really be scaring the American people. Alan Moore, finally to you. Bigger story. Um, yeah, his system, the president's systematic undercutting of uh, uh, longstanding, important U.S. government institutions on which we all rely and that should not be politicized. That's the greatest danger. Um, is he doing it just because he's totally ignorant or is he doing it to 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 desperately try to cover something up. Um, we will see. I mean, this is a guy, this is a guy that said Democrats were treasonous for not standing up and clapping for him. I mean, come on. I mean, does America really believe that there is a secret society running a deep state government? We can't even, we can't, we can't not leak in this government do you think that there's a secret society that is secretly running the government and is trying to unthrone Donald Trump? Hey, by the way, guys, if you really want to see the whack jobs really start calling in and sending emails, watch this. Dear America, I am a Freemason. Oh, part of the, I'm part of the deep state. That's it. We're going. We're, that's it. Now everybody's going to be – oh, they're going to be calling in. They're going to be lined up like rockets now. Hey, we're going to take a quick just, break. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Sharmila. If you want to talk to the deep state, talk into the microphone. Go ahead. Well, no, the evil – I was just going to say, but the evil genius of this this method of calling every – you know, claiming a deep state is that when things go – things don't go your way, you can just point to this fictional bogeyman. And I think that, unfortunately, a large part of the president's base and, you know, his core support – his core supporters believe believe it. Right, and so whether or not it's true is less important than the fact that he's convinced others oh. that it is true, and he can point oh, to Sharmila. any adverse outcome for him as proof. 
Oh, oh Sharmila, you, that is that is absolutely true. You know for a fact that this president is talking to the Upper Peninsula Michigan militia crowd. He is talking to the survivor crowd in Wyoming and Utah and Idaho. These are the MK these are the M16 AK47 blow up forests as part of the practice for their militia training crowd. And that's who he's talking to. Hey, we're going to take a quick break because I've got to go check on the national treasure that's buried underneath the Capitol. When we come back, we're going to talk about the state of the union. We're going to talk about uh, the winners, the losers. And we're also going to talk about the government shutdown. It's deja vu all over again, kids. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics. Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. Still in my heart. 
room politics. And we're back here live from Washington, D.C., where we and New York City. I keep forgetting you, Sharon, while you're in New York City in the heart of the financial district in Manhattan. We are here in the National Capital Region and New York City for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We're going to talk a little bit about the latest in the State of the Union and the fallout of said State of the Union. Uh, In case you missed it, last Tuesday, the President of the United States gave his first State of the Union to a joint session of of Congress. Even before it started, it became tumultuous. You had more pro you had more protests inside that chamber than you did out. It was a largely contentious, I guess would be a good word to describe it. Uh State of the Union speech. There were high points, there were low points. Uh President Trump managed to seem to stay on script for the most part. Uh he got high credits for using human props during his speech. About every five minutes, introducing somebody in the gallery. Great use of human uh, uh, human stories there, and uh, really took swipes at some deep policy issues that are facing this country. Let me start off, Admiral Ken. You saw the State of the Union. Uh, what grade would you give the president, and what did you think were a highlight? Um, I'd have to give him a B plus, yeah, A minus. Really. You know, really? yeah. I, you know what? So when 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 POTUS when POTUS is is reading from a teleprompter and he doesn't go off script, he can almost, if you close your eyes and you turn around four times in a circle and then sit down before you fall off from being dizzy, dizzy, you know, can almost seem presidential. So I, you know, and and I I, I sat there a couple of times. I went, wow, you know, that's pretty good. But you know, we we talked about one or two of the other things that I thought were gas. But um, but I have to give an A plus or B minus. For me, the highlight um, was um, when he uh, when he uh, I guess introduced the uh, the North Korean refugee. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people um, who want to believe that if you don't poke the bear, the bear will go away, and that's not true. While I don't think much of the method that the president has engaged at containing North Korea. Um, this is a problem that has been around since I was a lieutenant, and that was a long time ago. And so um, <laughs> a long time ago. And uh, those were good days, by the way. And, uh, but I think that I think that, um, that for me was probably the highlight. Um, but you know, and we talked before, you know, about the fact that you know many members of the of the Democratic side of things did not stand up and applaud, and and with good reason. Um, but um, you know, it, it wasn't the worst. Um, it was not nearly as I guess troubling as uh, his acceptance speech when at an at inauguration, and it wasn't nearly as troubling as the first address to Congress that he gave a year ago. So there you go. Sharmila uh, Chari. What say you? What do you give the what grade do you give the president on the State of the Union? Well, I hate to be less generous than Ken, but I would give him a <laughs> C minus C plus. A what? A what um, a what? A B minus to a C plus. Oh, okay. I thought that Wow, that's that's I even thought, more generous I thought you'd give. Okay. <laughs> I thought that this Why? was one of the more nakedly political state of the unions uh in the hist- that I've seen in my lifetime. And that, 
you know, it was just as remarkable for what he talked about versus what he didn't talk about. <clears throat> Excuse me. He did not talk about he he you know he he called out the the um the victims of the Las Vegas and the other mass shootings this year, but he didn't talk about gun safety or gun policy or anything that his administration is doing to make Americans safer from gun violence. He talked about the police officer who adopted the baby of a woman, a pregnant woman who is addicted to heroin, but he didn't talk about what his administration is doing to lessen the opioid crisis, which is predominantly affecting states that voted for him. He didn't, he talked about tax cuts, but he didn't talk about his administration's efforts to gut Obamacare and to gut Medicare and how, you know, how help, like he didn't talk about the rising cost of health care or how his administration is going to, is going to resolve any of those. And I think the worst part of his speech was his naked, naked, um, blaming. Sharmila, Sharmila, I want to interject. I'm going to interject something. Please do not keep saying naked and Donald Trump in the same sentence. Don't need the mental image. Thank you. Fair enough. So Thank his, you. His Continue. His blatant conflation of immigration reform with gangs like MS-13 and violence Much perpetrated, better. random acts of violence perpetrated by undocumented immigrants, I thought that was unforgivable. You know, so I got to tell you something. That that was probably one of the big glaring things. I was actually watching, and I got to say, I just want to go off on a tangent and take a couple of seconds, taking moderator's privilege for a second. I actually watched the State of the Union from a cigar shop in League City, Texas, and in the in the room watching with me was a former uh, a former narcotics undercover detective from Chicago a a multi 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 millionaire uh from the energy sector self made in the room with me and a teacher and then the owner of the shop the perspectives that we get watching in some place like league city texas and watching the state of the union much different than what we get when we watch it here from inside the beltway. We truly do live in a bubble. Let me now that I just say that to lead to this. As I'm sitting there, well, the undercover. On. Hold on. Yeah. So so I I I I understand you know your 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 perspective, but you know on on the counter I, I watched it at, at our former home, Shelley's back room, and in Shelley's there's a good number of televisions. There was only one, the one over the bar that was tuned to the State of the Union address. No one else was watching that. They were watching basketball games. So I urge caution in the the the, the praise that you're you're giving the engagement level of people who live inside the Beltway. <laughs> no, oh, that may be the case. That may be the case. If I say something, it was it was refreshing watching it with people outside the Beltway. Now I say this because one of the things this goes to Sharmless point. One of the things I noticed that the president did was basically turn all anybody who is coming from Latin America in immigration status, whether a dreamer, whether an illegal, questionably documented, or illegal, if you're Latino, you're MS-13. Pretty much if you're coming across the border and you're Latino, you either – are or being forced by or have family connections to MS-13. What the president does not understand is that 
MS-13 is not the immigration problem. MS-13 is a criminal gang activity. That is a that is a gang problem. That is a criminal law enforcement problem. That is even a drug problem. MS-13 is not the problem for immigration. And anybody who says that does not understand immigration or gangs. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing that we brought up. If he's talking about MS-13, why is he not talking about the domesticated gangs? We, he doesn't talk about the Crips and the Bloods or the Latin Kings because those are domestic gangs. You can't have it both ways, and this is the fallacy I think that people are going to start seeing in the Trump immigration policy. Uh, Alan Moore, I, I, am I off base on that? Yep, yep. I am. But before I go there, yeah, but, but but I'll come back to that. Let me let me start though by saying that that I want I'm I'm realizing there's a generational divide between me and Charmala and maybe even a half a half a generational divide with Ken because I want them to be my teachers because they <laughs> both are, are 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 teachers who give higher grades than than I was ever used to. I mean, I, I, I'm staggered that Ken would give, would, would use the letter A on anything that the president has done, but I, <laughs> but I appreciate his open-mindedness. And Sharmila, good God, a B minus, C plus, and then proceeds to completely trash the speech. Wow. Um, I want Sharmila grading my papers in the future. Having said that, during the speech, let it be known, that I was with the majority of America. I was not watching it. Um, I had my. I was in San Francisco with my and getting dinner for my five-year-old, three-year-old, and one-year-old grandchildren, and and enjoying enjoying that. So, so my experience was sort of secondhand, episodic bits and pieces here and there. I'll, I'll, I'll give him a B because I do agree with Ken that, that he exceeded expectations. We expected him to. We expected him to. We predicted it last week. Um, and then we also <laughs> fully expected, and he didn't let us down, that he would undercut it shortly thereafter. Just a word on your MS-13 comment. The difference between, I think, that, that the way most Americans feel about MS-13 is that it's, that it's a gang of younger immigrants rather than embedded in a, into America, painful as that is. And so the notion is, I'm not saying this is accurate, that, that, that if, if it's fed constantly by new young immigrants from uh, Central and South America, gosh, we may not be able to solve the Crips and Bloods problem, but if we can keep young male immigrants out, we, will, we, can, we can shut down the, the feeder system to MS-13. I don't like the narrative, but I don't think that it's, it's a narrative, so, Alan. It's a narrative. But it's going to come back. That it's that it's going to come back and and bite him the way you think it does. Alan, it's a, I, 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 I do agree with your last statement, but I will say this: it is a narrative based on ignorance. Let's be clear about this. Not every young male that comes across the border, either legally or illegally, is automatically MS or or part of the Sinaloa. made made that point first. That she said, "Hey, you don't just brand." all Hispanics by saying they're all going to be gang members, but some of them do. 
And I have no idea what the profile of MS-13 around the country looks like, but it's going to have a higher percentage of young male immigrants than any of these other gangs. So that's what's different with MS-13 and other gangs. The Latin Kings Kings would disagree with you greatly on that one. But anyway, we're getting down the – I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because the the thing about it is when we heard about – to me, and and, uh, Admiral Ken, I'll go to you first. To me, it sounded like this was more of a look at what I did speech more so than a – forward vision for the administration and what Donald Trump had for the State of the Union. Is that accurate? Well, yeah, it's Donald Trump. (laughs) Charmla, you agree? 100%. Alan Moore, will you take up, clean up on this one? No. The economy is soaring. And there was a big tax bill, and there's nothing on the plate for the future that's 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 got anybody very excited. So, uh, you know, other, other than, than he can demagogue, he can demagogue immigration and the wall. Um, so, you know, there there he he's going to be patting himself on the back about how great the economy is and and how he's the one who made it happen. That's the big story. So. Uh, a vision for the future of more negativity and, you know, back, it's sort of back to, to immigration. Um, he, he certainly touched on that, but, but that's not, you know, that's not going to inspire anybody. With regard yeah, but to Alan Moore, he had an I, opportunity. Yeah. Alan, he had an opportunity to sit there. He said from the beginning of his campaign and since he's been inaugurated that the opioid crisis in this country is a top priority for his administration. He had an opportunity to show some leadership and an opportunity to at least unveil some sort of strategy to deal with this. And instead he, he paraded this family around rightfully so, but had nothing to show for it. Well, so he doesn't have, he, he doesn't have new ideas. He doesn't have a plan. That that that's uh, that's not a huge surprise. Um, but don't hit. But it, it, so yeah, missed opportunity. But it's but but you have to have. It's a missed opportunity only if you have something to offer, which he doesn't. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I mean, are we going to continue, uh, Admiral Ken? Uh, I'm going to use a term that's probably prevalent down by uh, your folks down there in Alabama. Are we going to continue to see State of the Union addresses where the president's going to piss into a mason jar and tell us it's grandma's son lemonade? You know, I, I, I grew up in the South, and I left when I was 18, and I go back periodically, and I got to admit I never heard that before, but okay. <laughs> really? You've but never as heard I, that term. As I, as I, as I I've heard that. Question, I, I've heard that in Georgia. Don't piss in well, the mason jar and tell me it's lemonade. You, you're in Georgia. I'm not going to reignite the Alabama-Georgia um, debate here on, on, on this show. But I think it's Boston Patriot humor. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Go ahead, Admiral Ken. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think we're. I, I think uh, unless there's just this, you know, uh, m- great movement from heaven on high, you, I don't think. I, I don't think the pivot's coming, kids. It's not coming. This is who we have. And barring some bizarre act of Congress or um, or I don't know aliens coming down from you know from wherever, here's this is where we are. Wow, Sharmila, you agree? Well, first I want to say, if I can't say the word naked, you can't talk about Donald Trump pissing in a mason jar. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> You're both free to continue. <laughs> Go ahead, Charmela. But um, I'll I agree with everything Ken said. Oh, okay, that was easy. Hey, but the, the, the bottom the bottom line here is that we've got another situation that you know we talked about the greatness of uh, the, the, the greatness of, bipartis- of bipartisanship. The president told Congress and the nation that viewed his State of the Union that if, the, if, if this Congress brought us a solution, he would sign it. And yet, not a week later, we're talking about government shutdown again. It's deja vu all over again, as the great Yogi Berra used to say. Uh, Alan Moore, are we dealing in some sort of weird displaced reality, or is this really P.T. Barnum-style politics where the president's saying, I embrace bipartisanship on the great stage of the State of the Union, and then the first chance he gets, he goes to uh, a manufacturing facility in in, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania, and starts screaming about, how you know? Unless they give me an immigration policy that I want, I want to shut down this government. It's <laughs> you know, it's sad to say that a week ago we predicted that this outcome that he that he would in fact embrace bipartisanship and he would undercut it within days and. Uh, and, and and that's what he's done now. So that's not a surprise. What's dangerous, though, is him embracing again this notion. Hey, maybe we need a good shutdown. I thought that he'd backed away from that. I thought, stupid me, that when he last time around said, "Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think a." shutdown is good for the country and we should not do that. We should avoid it. Because he said that after many times prior saying, let's shut the government down. Um, It might be good for us. Then he seemed more reasoned, more informed, more thoughtful, more reflective. I know those words don't fit very well with with Donald Trump. Just seemed, right? But it was a mirage. Uh, and then in, uh, today, uh, uh, and, and I guess yesterday, along with with uh, falling into this idiotic thing of saying that it was treasonous not to stand and applaud um, for the Democrats during the State of the Union speech, which is which is really a scary, scary notion that in this system that if you don't stand and salute pardon the uh, the imagery um the this this president who they despise 
um, uh, for lots of reasons, um, many of which are hard to disagree with, um, that he then make calls it treason and un-American. I mean, what this feeds is those folks you were talking about, those audiences in uh, in Upper Michigan, Michigan, and, and Idaho, and elsewhere, to take matters into their own hands. I mean, it, it, it feeds the the crazy fringe elements to thinking they are not American. They are committing treason against our beloved president and people who, who have that view are a danger to America, which is sort of what he's suggesting. Treason, treason is a crime in the constitution that can lead to the penalty of death. Anyway, it is really irresponsible and disgusting and dangerous. Even though I watched the the statement, he's kind of offhanded. It's his way that he gets this idea in his mind. Yeah, some people call it treason. Okay, let's call it treason. And he would say, oh, I wasn't being serious. And, you know, it's this, again, are we going to take him literally? Are we going to take him seriously? What are we going to do? It is irresponsible and dangerous. And I mean, I mean, quite honestly, um, I mean, quite and, honestly, and it, and Charmel, it totally undercuts the bipartisan uh, narrative, and then absolutely. to suggest that a, that a breakdown, that a that a that a shutdown, might be a good thing. Come on, come on. Hey. How many times does he have to review his his stupid statements and and put his poor staff through this position of saying, Mr. President, it's not going to work out well for you. He thinks because he sort of won the, the, the public debate, the debate of public opinion, the Democrats back down last time, that he can continue to play out that narrative. It just works against the country's interests. I agree with that, Alan. And, and Charmla, to go off of one of Ken's last points in his comments, is let's say this does come to the government shutdown. Let's say this does go to uh, closed national parks and – uh, mission essential services only. The, the the one thing that comes to mind is the, last time it seemed to backfire on the Democrats. Chuck Schumer in particular and the Democrats as a whole took a big hit on the last government shutdown that happened two weeks ago. Is that Are they going to make the same mistake again? Potentially, because it seems the Democrats don't learn from their mistakes or the mistakes made by Republicans. I think that the Democrats have to frame this as more than just a shutdown because of the dreamers. I think that they have to highlight other policy positions that they are fighting for uh, that affect everyday Americans. And I think they need to make that messaging really strong. I think in order for the Democrats to come out of this unscathed or relatively less scathed than the GOP, they need to draw a very strong line between Donald Trump and the shutdown. They need to draw a really strong line between his unreasonable demands on immigration, his his conflating of two issues between, you know, the the immigration question and the budget and not bog that down with their own, you know, as much as it pains me to say this, but not bog that down with rhetoric about the dreamers. I mean, I mean, Charmla, it, it, it seems to me like both sides are playing a really ugly game and a very dangerous game of chicken 
this close to a midterm, a major midterm election, which is going to define the country in the next two to seven years. Is is this a situation where uh, the Democrats are going to hold firm this time? They're not going to take the uh, they're not going to take the olive branch in one hand and the bat in the other from the president. They're going to hold they're going to hold firm on their values. I think they will. I have faith in our Democratic elected officials, and I also have faith in their sort of political survivalism. I think that they've seen the polls. They know that, you know, despite his his small bumps this week and, you know, in the last two weeks, Donald Trump still remains toxically unpopular and standing standing firmly in opposition to him is going to be the best way for them to maintain their Democratic base and potentially grow it against center-right and independent anti-Trump voters. I think that the Democrat who defects does so at his own peril. And I don't say that as a I don't say that, you know, intimidatingly. I say that realistically. Well, here's a question. Here's a question to you, Admiral Ken, is, you know, we're already starting to hear rhetoric. The last government shutdown, we heard everybody saying the Democrats are based. The Democrats hate the military. The Democrats hate public uh, safety officials, first responders. They're 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 politicizing the checks to the enlisted Soldiers and sailors and airmen and coasties of our country. Uh, is that argument going to play out the same way, or have they spent that chip? And if they keep using it, it will come back and backfire on them. I, I think that the possibility of it coming back and backfiring on them is still there. So, from from my perspective. Um, I thought that Chuck Schumer, um, you know, didn't so much as fail in in, uh, in his inability to, uh, to to try and meet the president halfway, which I don't think is impossible, which is possible for him to do. I think the problem is that uh, Chuck Schumer and the rest of the Democratic leadership let the messaging get away from them. They let the Republicans rule the airways with regard to um, who was really at fault and what really needed to happen in order to keep this from happening again. Um, I think it goes back to, you know, it goes back to uh, something we learned a long time ago. If, if you've got a good message, uh, and the message is simple and straightforward enough, then it, you know, then it, will, it, will, it will make its point. But if you go back and you look at the, the, uh, the, the, the hours or days before the shutdown and the days right after, or the day or so right after, even on the Sunday talk shows, um, the, the Republicans ruled that message. The, the Democrats, from my perspective, and, and, and Sharma, I, you know, I invite you to disagree with me uh, if, if, if you wish, they were almost mute. And, and, uh, and it's unfortunate because, I, you know, like with everything that happens in this town, there's always at least two sides, maybe more. And you only heard really one side last time. Sharma? I couldn't quite hear what Ken was saying. It was, there was sort of an echo. Can you recap that for me? Uh, well, it was a long story, but basically uh, he was basically calling out the Democrats for blanking. Uh, you know, how do we make sure that the Democrats aren't going to blank, and how do they defend themselves when the Republic? you know, do they have the strength 
and the credibility to defend themselves when they're being called out for hating military. Oh, I think absolutely. I think I think that's always been a specious argument that the Democrats hate the military or that they hate first responders. I think that you you can disprove that easily with their you know their votes to fund disaster recovery efforts or their votes to fund you know military budgets or the military expansions that have been happening you know in the last eight years. So I think that that's a specious argument. And yes, the Democrats need to come up with some punchy talking points against it. But I think that what's I think what, what the bigger danger is, as you know, as Ken said, if the Democrats blink and they come out of this budget negotiation, as they did the last, you know, shutdown negotiation, having having made an agreement without getting in, without getting anything in return, because I think that more than anything else could really sour the momentum for a 2018 wave. If the Democratic base isn't convinced that the Democrats can actually move progressive policies forward, then they're lost. Alan Moore, it, it seems to me that what I'm hearing from uh, everybody and then my own uh, talking with folks around town is that uh, the American voter and the American electorate might be getting sick and tired of this cry wolf mentality inside the White House and inside Republican leadership. Is there any truth to that? Are we, in fact, going to see where they might have gotten uh, the benefit of the doubt in the last shutdown two weeks ago? This could be a flaming disaster for Republicans and what they last think of when they go to the polls in November? Well, the problem before and the, and the, and the recurring problem, if there is a shutdown, is that the Democrats got themselves into this position of saying – Unless you fix DACA, we're not going to fund the government. And that's a choice that most Americans um, (laughs) are not going to make. And the Democrats realized that that was a losing argument. I'm not not ignoring the fact that there was much more than that involved in the conversation, but that's what it boiled down to, and the Democrats walked right into it. That's where we still are. We still don't have a DACA fix, and we still need to fund government. Um, there's but there's let me, let all me just sorts of ideas quick. floating around. I'm just saying, I don't think that, that the Republicans, having won that argument a couple of weeks ago, are going to lose the same argument today. Now, there's a but bunch Alan, of ideas floating around. On, okay, go ahead. Alan, let me just jump in real quick, because... Uh, This afternoon, uh, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly came out and said that DREAMers were not a priority when it came to enforcing the immigration laws or or deportation and removal orders. I mean, is that enough to – I mean, is that enough to assuage Democrats to get them to play ball on keeping – the government open, or is this just another jazz hands maneuver by a White House that, quite frankly, nobody really trusts or gives any credibility to? Right, but Justin, he also said today that he doubts that President Trump will extend their work permits past March 5th. So I think, again, that's, you know, you can't say on one hand, oh, well, it's not an enforcement priority, but also we are not going to 
we're actively not going to let, you know, we're going to actively diminish the status they currently enjoy. Yeah, I mean that that's just that's just stupid. I mean, I mean that's just that that's just stupid. That just shows the lack of maturity in the messaging and the comm structure in that White House. I mean, Alan Moore, they cannot keep going forward and expect to not take hits on this as you know, even just within a matter of hours, there's conflicting messages on what the status of dreamers and work permits are inside uh, the dealings to prevent a government shutdown. I'm not even sure what your question is here, Justin. Um, uh, I I think that, that that, that for now, at this point in time, the Republicans are holding the slightly stronger hand. That doesn't mean How? that the president can't, can't because we're where we were a few weeks ago where we, we've, the, the Democrats are saying we, we need the, the permanent DACA fix uh, if, if you want to keep government open. So what I think will happen is it won't be a permanent DACA fix and it won't include all the other elements of chain migration and, and other uh, immigration changes. Um, there will be some kind of DACA fix, but it might be just a one year. I don't think that's a good answer, but I think that's a possible answer. Um, and and I, I don't see how the uh, if, if push comes to shove on that, where you get a majority, uh, where you get 60 votes in the Senate um, uh, for for. Uh, anything, you know, there will be some enhanced border security without question. I don't know how much wall funding, not much. Um, And then a temporary DACA fix. And maybe we punt the thing uh, another month or two down the road, or maybe we go all the way through the end of September. There's also a huge need in the eyes of many um, on both in both houses uh, for additional defense spending. That's a problem in the Senate where, yes, there would be an acknowledgement, but there's going to be a resistance right. to increasing defense and not adding a, 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 you know, some significant amount to domestic spending. So just a further reminder that nobody really cares about the deficit. Um, and, and, uh, and so I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, right. I am not having, having watched it happen before. Um, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that this is a that, that we're on a path to a democratic win here. Oh, uh, we'll see. We will definitely see. One word answer, and I know that's difficult for some people on the line. One word answer: Do we have a government <laughs> shutdown on Friday? Starting with you, Charmila. Yes, I believe so. Admiral Ken. Yes, I believe so. Really, one word answer? God. Alan no. Moore. There no. we go. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, with that, we've got seven minutes left in the show. Real quickly, I want to take uh, a couple of seconds and talk about something that happened uh, this afternoon. Uh, there's breaking news coming out of Cape Canaveral, Florida, down at Kim Space Center. Elon Musk had a really beautiful, successful launch of his uh, Falcon Heavy rocket, which contained which is kind of baller, 
contained his own Tesla red convertible with a mock-up dummy in a spacesuit with a constant loop of David Bowie's space oddity playing. Why is it significant? This is actually a very significant launch. One, even Elon Musk said this was going to be a 50-50 deal. Number two, um, this is the rebirth of us going back to manned space flight and space exploration. Everybody knows, and, and yeah, I'm being a little selfish. I'm being a little homer here. But I just wanted to say congratulations to the folks at SpaceX, to Elon Musk, and to NASA and Air Force Space Command for a hugely successful launch, which puts us back in the space game. That's my own personal prerogative. I just wanted to throw that out there. But with that, uh, on behalf of uh, Sharmila Achari, uh, Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week live from your nation's capital. And, of course, Sharmila, also, we love having you from New York City. It's like having our own financial desk on the show. It's awesome. Uh, we will be back live next week uh, here on Blog Talk Radio for the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics. Uh, we, you can follow us on our Twitter account, at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on our Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. And you can uh, also, shortly, we're going to have a new website. You can check that out, backroompolitics.org. Or you can email me your comments. And for all of you whack jobs that think they're part of a secret society in the deep state and want to know where the national treasure is, you can email me your requests at justin at backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.